1: This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. But talking politics and history with Sherrod Brown. Of course, Sherrod Brown is the senior senator from Ohio, first elected in 2006. He was reelected in 2018. He won by seven points in a state Hillary Clinton had lost by eight points just two years earlier. Now he's got a new book out in paperback. It's called Desk 88. Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's an honor and a pleasure to say. Sherrod Brown, welcome back.
2: Thanks. Good to be back on your show. Thank you. Thanks for speaking out as a progressive.
1: Well, at the end of Desk 88, you talk about your own re-election in 2018. And let's say it again, you won by seven points in the state. Hillary had lost by eight points just two years earlier. We have an important question about that. What are the lessons for Joe Biden in Ohio in 2020 from the experiences of Hillary in 2016 and you in 2018?
2: Well, first of all, elections. Elections are only about whose side are you on. And Trump came to Ohio in 16 and convinced enough voters, uh, stunningly in many ways, enough voters that um, he was on their side. And he put out a phony populism that more and more people understand, more and more people are on uh, and I, I, Biden, Biden needs to do what he's mostly doing, and that is talk about the dignity of work, run a campaign and promise to run a government through the eyes of workers. Make that contrast of the dignity of work with, with Trump's betrayal of workers, where Trump has opposed the minimum wage taken away overtime for 100,000 Ohio workers, uh, taken away the unemployment benefit, $600 a week that kept hundreds of thousands of Ohioans out of poverty. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Ohioans lost their unemployment August 1st, as they did elsewhere in the country. How are they gonna pay? They can't find jobs in this economy. How are they gonna pay their 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 rent or their mortgage? How are they gonna pay their gas bill? How are they gonna provide food for their kids when they lost that $600 a week that, that really kept them out of poverty? So because elections are about contrast, and Biden has been a friend of workers, and Trump has betrayed them, uh, I There are, and there are way more examples than that. And that's how to make that contrast with Trump. And I think you'll see enough of the Trump 16 voters move away from him towards Biden because of that.
1: And I imagine Joe Biden knows all about how you won in 2018 after Hillary lost in 2016. Well, Biden, Biden is a
2: smart guy, and Biden's campaign has looked a lot in Ohio. And I, I think you can see in Biden. I mean, Biden at the Democratic convention, Joe, and the vice president and a number of others used the word dignity, dignity of work, the human dignity, the way Dr. King did. I mean, the, the term dignity of work is, is, is hardly my invention. Uh, it was um, Pope Leo is my first coming upon that term, who was the labor pope at the turn of the last century. And and then Dr. King used the term dignity of work repeatedly. And King, King understood uh, the, the the overlap of, of Civil rights and workers and labor rights. And I mean, look where he was when he was assassinated. He was in Memphis fighting for the most, some of the most um, oppressed workers uh, in the country. Workers almost entirely black or maybe all black, not paid well, few benefits, terrible working conditions. A couple of workers had been killed. I don't remember precisely, but but I think killed by a garbage compactor only in the few weeks leading up to the strike uh, so dr. King understood dignity of work and as I mean well, interestingly back um, your your u.s Senator Kamala Harris soon after she was in office she and I were sitting on the Senate floor one day after the dr. King holiday and we were talking about our speeches at dr. King holidays in our uh, she I think in LA I'm not sure and I was in Cleveland and and we were sitting on the floor and she sat in the senate and she we're talking she said what'd you talk about i talked about the dignity of work and i was quoting king and you know about a week later she walks up and she hands me a book that's the name of the book was all work has dignity mm. and or all labor has dignity i think it was all labor has dignity it was a compilation of king's speeches to unions and to worker groups um, in the last 10 years of his life and king in the last years of his life he was more and more intertwined with the labor movement much of the labor movement, very supportive, not all the labor movement. There would be now, but uh, times have changed in some ways for the better.
1: Well, the um, the new paperback of your book, Desk 88, has an afterword, seems like it was written last week. It takes up the question of, what the way you put it is, when the stars next align for progressives to be in power in Washington, and that may well happen on January 20th, the polls say, Biden is likely to win the election. The Democrats will take control of the Senate. Uh, so let us assume Biden takes the oath of office on January 20th and a new Democratic Senate is seated. What are your priorities for that day, that week, that month?
2: Well, the priorities I think of mainstream Democrats, and that's from Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth Warren and me and Joe Biden and, and uh, you know Kamala Harris and a number of others is we need we need to move quickly. Uh, we need to do things that will give people benefits immediately, such as minimum wage, allowing Medicare buy-in at 55, uh, the giving you know, unions a right to organize. We need we need to do we need to expand democracy, and that means the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It means ending the redistricting abuses. It means giving people restoring democracy that much of it has been compromised. Um, but I, I, I think of it this way, that that, we, that there are three great moral issues of our times. Climate change that your state has been so afflicted with, not just now, but other times. Climate change, race racial disparities, and income inequality. And I think Democrats will govern always with those three things. And that, that's immigration reform. It's a higher minimum wage. It's a tax system, the child tax credit, where low-income people... Get a better deal from their government instead of tax breaks for the rich. We do tax breaks for, for lower income working families. We know who the essential workers are, and the pandemic has been the great revealer. It's shown who the essential workers are in this country. They're mostly women. They're disproportionately people of color, and they're mostly low paid. And they they you know they drive the buses. They take care of they they change the linen at the hospital. They they work in grocery stores and drug stores. They ex- are exposed to the virus, not making a lot of money. Then they go home, anxious about whether they're exposing their families. They have to They have to be at the front of the line this time.
1: Uh, I want to talk about your book, Desk 88, which is a wonderful history of American politics seen from the vantage point of all the of, Different senators who've occupied your desk on the on the Senate floor, some amazing people occupied your desk, and we have some things we need to learn from their uh, experiences. One of them is George McGovern, of course, a hero of ours. He was right about pretty much everything, especially the war in Vietnam when he ran in 1972. But he was also the biggest loser in the modern history of the Democratic Party. He 72 he carried. Only Massachusetts and the District of Columbia and really Nixon beating McGovern in 72 was much worse than Trump beating Hillary because Hillary, of course, won the popular vote by 3 million votes. McGovern lost by almost 18 million votes. I know one of your earliest experience in politics, you were a teenager in 1972, was that you worked on the McGovern campaign. What was your experience? And looking back on that, why do you think McGovern lost so badly? I
2: would, I would choose to talk about the, the great and the positive things McGovern did, but I'll I'll try to answer that. I, I was a teen, I was 19, I didn't know much about, I mean, I thought McGovern was gonna win right up until election day. So it tells you how much I really understood politics. But I mean, cause I could see then he was right. He was right on a better tax system. He was right from a progressive viewpoint. Nixon, well, Nixon cheated in the campaign. We know that uh, Nixon um, also, you know, he, he played to the racial fears. He does some of the things Trump does. Um, he learned from from Wallace's '68 campaign. Nixon learned how to play to bigotry and race, and started something called the Southern Strategy, as you remember. But it's a different time now, so I don't I don't make that comparison because Nixon won, that Trump's going to, because I think it's a very different a very different country. But McGovern. But McGo- McGovern was a guy that um, he really, he's, he will be remembered as he helped us as, as he was, um, he was JFK's uh, food uh, ambassador, I think. And um, when he met Pope John the 23rd, McGovern told me this, although I've also seen it in writing. He said, John the 23rd greeted him and said, when the Lord, when you meet the Lord, you can say you help feed the poor. And um, that was probably the, I mean, you don't get many compliments like that, whether you're religious or not, the Pope's saying you fed the poor, right? And McGovern devoted much of his life to all these programs, including near the end of his career. We we as a nation had a real commitment. Again, we pulled back because of Trump, but we had a real commitment to provide every possible child in school and the developing world with at least one hot meal a day. And my wife Connie and I were in Haiti um, in a in a clinic, working with some people, and I saw one of those feeding programs. And the kids, I mean, it it was one really good hot meal they got every day, and that was something they hadn't had. McGovern McGovern went to his grave knowing he did that.
1: Well, your chapter on McGovern has has what I think is my favorite quote in the whole book. You quote Tip O'Neill, the longtime head of House Democrats, who said the McGovern quote. I can count a hundred congressmen who are here because of your 1972 campaign, close quote, the biggest loss the Democrats had suffered in modern history. Please explain that. And
2: you know, I wasn't in Congress, and so I wasn't one of the hundred, but there were all kinds of people that started their political, that, that were interested in politics because McGovern pulled them in. They, they had maybe been, they had protested the war, they were interested in the environment, The first Earth Day took place two years earlier in 1970. They had come out of the Civil Rights Movement. And McGovern was their entry vehicle into political action, into electoral politics. And that that meant that a whole lot of people that had worked with McGovern that had the same crushing election night that, that all of us had that were involved, and they decided, you know... This isn't the end. This is the beginning. They then ran. Two years later, I ran for the legislature um, and got elected in Ohio. And I I don't I don't know if I would have run if it weren't for McGovern, but it certainly made a big impact on me that electoral politics is something that that I can do and that we need people, we need progressive, outspoken progressive activists to do it.
1: When we Look at Donald Trump. We think of the Republican Party that he's changed so drastically, and we wonder why haven't more Republicans said this is not what we want our party to be? There aren't very many Republicans who've changed their minds about the trajectory of their party. Your book has some fascinating examples of people in politics who did change their minds. They're really my favorite people in your book starting with Hugo Black from Alabama elected to the Senate in 1926 he he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan but he changed his mind in, and changed sides in the great battles of the 1930s It's a fabulous story and thank you for telling it summarize it briefly for us now
2: well okay he uh, black when he black was a trial lawyer and a judge and uh, what they called a judge in in Birmingham and he um, When he ran for office, he said, I have to choose between the big mules. The big mules were the power companies, the steel companies, the mining companies, the people that controlled Alabama. And blacks weren't voting in those days, as of course you know. Um, He had to choose between the big mules and the KKK. He said those were the only two choices to run for office. I I don't know that that was true, but that's the way he looked at it. And he, um, he disclaimed his membership. He never denied it. He quickly renounced the Klan. Um, he still wasn't particularly good on race until the mid '30s, until his second term, and he was—he um, probably did more for workers than anybody in the Senate, except for um, Senator Wagner of New York, in the minimum wage and the eight-hour workday and 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 collective bargaining. So, I, I heard what you said at the beginning of that question about Republicans now, uh, and I—I I, um, I wrote a—I um, wrote in the, in the in the afterward that I wrote this past summer. Um, I spoke about impeachment and the virus. And um, watching watching a bunch of my spineless colleagues, uh, history will treat them pretty cruelly as they deserve. That, they, that even, even when this week or two weeks ago, when Trump so showed such disrespect for, uh, for our fallen troops, for soldiers that died in France or died wherever, that Trump showed such res- disrespect for them, I heard hardly a Republican criticize it. They are, they are afraid, I wrote in the impeachment part of that last chapter, they were driven by fear. They were afraid Trump would call them a name or campaign against them or show up at their state and say something negative. And they have shown amazing cowardice in, in the face of this immoral racist president. And I, I, don't, I don't know if it will cost them politically. Some of them live in states that they could not lose, but some of them don't. And I think I know history will treat them badly.
1: Last question. Of course, the 2020 presidential election. Everyone I know is full of anxiety about what Trump and the Republicans are doing to prevent Democrats from voting, to screw up the count, to undermine and confuse the results. And they're even more worried about what Trump might do after he loses in that period between November and January 20th. Are you at all optimistic we're going to get through that period with our democracy intact we're going to get through it. he's going
2: to lose and he's going to cry foul play he may try to you know they'll, the democrats are more likely to vote early republicans are more likely to vote election day the initial numbers may show trump winning he's going to declare victory he's going to say democrats um, that these votes are all corrupt and rigged and he's going to do all that stuff and In the end, the Secret Service and the military will remove him from his office if he doesn't move himself by January 20th. I feel that we're gonna beat him. I'm concerned about his cheating and his lying. We've never seen a president do anything like this. Nixon at his worst wasn't this. But it means means two things. It means we've gotta really, we've really gotta be acting the kind of activists and get every possible vote including those of you that live in states that are clearly going our way or clearly going the other way that that you do all you can with any relatives younger people especially in other states or even in your home state um and it means that um we've got to be vigilant but it, it also means vote early that we should vote um we should vote if you could vote in person early a month for the election like you can in ohio go vote early or send in your absentee ballot and the post office absolutely can handle these ballots I have no doubt, is in spite of the, the um, idiot that's now running the post office, the political hack, there's no doubt they can, the, the postal service, the workers, I meet with postal workers pretty often, they, there is no doubt they will run this election. this may, These mail-in votes the way they need to, I'll give you one set of numbers. Country of 300 million people, right? The postal service handles 400 million pieces of mail per day, 400 million. The most people that would vote absentee would be 150 million over the space of a month. So you've got, they handle $400 million a day. They can sure handle an extra $150 million over a month's period. So Postal Service will do it right. We should vote early,
1: uh, and we should be vigilant about Trump's cheating. Sherrod Brown, of course, he's the senior senator from Ohio. His new book out in paperback is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's a terrific book. Thank you, Senator Brown.
2: It was a pleasure to be on again. Good to see you again. Thanks. Be safe.